Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. So thank you, Rachel, from Fishbowl to, uh, to put this together. As we started to chat a little bit at the beginning, uh, we'd like to introduce ourselves first. This is our first Fishbowl event. Uh, we are co-hosts of Voice of Fintech podcast. Uh, Voice of Fintech, I've started in June 2019. Uh, my name is Rudy, Rudy Fallad. I'm based in Switzerland. So for me, it's a late night show. But in any case, it, this is great to talk to you. I lived in the US as well, in Austria, in the UK, France and Singapore. So all over the place. And that's why over the time when I started talking about fintech and I talked to founders, investors, incumbents, and then also ecosystem hub leaders and uh, thought leaders, so people who don't really belong anywhere, I was always focused on the international aspect of it because I think fintech is a tech business and therefore there's no excuse. You should think about scalability and maybe you don't really see it in America. We envy you in Europe, but in Europe, what that means is you have to go international. So that's why we've got co-hosts now in Asia as well. So there are two in Singapore and one in India. We've got the three in Africa, in Kenya, in Nigeria and South, Af- uh, South Africa and in the Americas. We've got uh, in uh, Clementina in Colombia, in Spanish, actually, we've got David based in New York. So David is uh, going to co-host this session with me today. I let him to introduce himself as, uh, as well because he's got very wide range of activities when he works uh, in with and in startups and also as an early stage investor. I do the same. I spent more than 20 years in finance, as I said, all over the world, and then uh, nearly 15 years in banks in London and in Zurich, in financial services mostly. And I started mentoring, advising startups and also investing in them as a business angel. And uh, I coach executives at INSEAD Columbia Business School and Imperial uh, College as well. So, uh, David, uh, please tell us about yourself as well. How did you get to do what you do today? Really, thanks so much. And everyone, thanks for joining you on this uh, Fishbowl Fireside conversation. I'm joining you today from New York City. And uh, wow, what a year it's been. Um, Today, I work by day uh, as an operator at Single Store, which is a unified database for data-intensive applications. Prior to that, I worked at enterprise companies building and scaling data science and AI teams for financial clients like Charles Schwab, USAA, Invesco, Bloomberg, Refinitiv, uh, Citadel, and more. And prior to that, I worked for big financial companies like Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, ADP, and Aflac. So this whole career led me to connect with one of our mutual friends to Rudy a couple of years ago to join Voice of Fintech as a co-host and to also get involved on the investor side of venture capital. 
I launched with some of my colleagues, DataFrame Ventures, which now is in its next generation growth as Data Power Ventures, investing in the exponential power of data to transform business. And through that, we also look at fintech investments. Actually, we're currently finishing to raise for one fintech in its seed round. So I can tell you, fintech is a hot, hot, hot market. Exactly. It is very hard. And some people think it's actually too hard as well, right? So I don't want to be the, uh, you know, party uh, uh, P something, right? So, but what we'd like to talk about here is that uh, the trends and the successes that we've seen in the fintech world in the US or all, or all around the world, and maybe challenge some of the narrative as well. Um, I like that when I coach the, the courses because there you can hear from the faculty that has no agenda, right? There is no uh, conflict of interest, really. Uh, you can, let's assume, right? I mean, the ones that I'm involved in for sure. And uh, you can have a balanced view without being bombarded by somebody's propaganda, to, so to speak. So, of course... We like to see big numbers, we like to see great valuations, fundraising successes and exits, etc. new trends and new products, but um, some of them, they warrant also a little bit of uh, critical thinking. So that's what we would like to talk about. Obviously, there are some trends which are, I think, non-controversial. So for example, financial literacy. I, the, I've seen an article from Mass Challenge. Mass Challenge is an accelerator and incubator started out of uh, the US, but also active worldwide. I interviewed their uh, Swiss head uh, just before the pandemic, one of my last interviews in, in, in person. And uh, so they talk about financial literacy in 2021 has been uh, one of the main trends in fintech because when, uh, you know, we don't want to talk about pandemic all that uh, anymore, of course, but uh, the truth is that a lot of the people suffered to have um, sufficient funds to cover their expenses uh, last year or this year. And many of them, especially Gen Z, say that they would benefit from having a better financial knowledge. So we can talk about it a bit more. So, But that's the first one. We can all benefit from financial knowledge or financial literacy and its improvement. Then, of course, what we've seen everywhere around the world is expanded contactless or digital payments options, right? So in many countries, this was new. I, I understand in 2018, only a fraction of payments in, in America were done contactlessly. This was not the case so much in Europe. It, it was around, but the limits, for example, were quite low. And they were doubled or tripled during the pandemic. And frankly, they stay that way. So before it was maybe $20, now it's 40 or $50, depending on the country. And of course, you have also other solutions like mobile wallets, and we can talk about that. Also, using some of the examples of the interviews we have done or, you know, between uh, two of us or eight of us on the Voice of Fintech. And of course, everybody talks about QR codes as if they were a new thing. But uh, of course, they've been here around for they've been around for more than 20 years and P2P payments, and uh, as I said, you know, contactless, that means NFC or near-field communication payments. So uh, that's on the payment side, just want to introduce the topic. Then, of course, enhance autom autonomous finance. I mean, autonomous finance, basically, it's robo-advisory, right? Nothing new, but we can talk about it, whether 
this is something, for example, if you want to invest or as a client or as an investor, whether this is a segment that is um, that is something that you should uh, spend too much time on or be, being excited about. And uh, of course, payroll options. We talked a lot on the pay, on the on the on the uh, podcast about SME financing and freelancers being paid on a gig basis rather than having you know people having a salary, things like this. So all of these things will we can um, we can uh, uh, highlight here. And um, and then the last one perhaps is digital only banks. Um, Let's see what examples you like in uh, in your market. But in uh, you know we, we can talk about also the acquisitions. I'd like to talk about, for example, J.P. Morgan buying Nutmeg in the UK and why it was a, it seems like a good idea. Of course, it's too early to say. So um, some of the uh, trends here, as I said, financial literacy or payments or. Um, autonomous finance or robo-advisory uh, and then financing of your payroll or of your salary equivalent if you're a freelancer and then of course digital only banks so i'll just pause here for a little bit if david would you'd like to comment as well on some of these trends or <clears throat> there are other things that you liked uh, that you thought were success sec- uh, successes in in the fintech world this well, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. And I, I think one of the the notions that you shared to me that's so fascinating, Rudy, is the increase in corporate investment around M&A activity. Uh, when we look at the entire fintech market, it's not all about spocking or IPOing, but the acquisition market is on fire. As you mentioned, not only did JP Morgan buy Nutmeg, they also bought uh, Frank, which is all about uh, education and uh, student loan processes in the States, in the United States. Uh, and it's not only with JP Morgan, we've seen Coinbase's corporate ventures go on a spending spree, acquiring dozens of companies this year in the DeFi space. So I definitely see that um, as one of the big accelerators uh, we've seen now in the digital space, um, partially a result of so much capital and liquidity available on the market. And I think that capital has enabled the the trend really that you mentioned that I'm excited about, which is digital only banks. I remember right before the pandemic, only one of my apps let me uh, take pictures of my checks to get them cashed. It's as if once the pandemic happened, a switch turned on and everyone said, oh, we accept checks. So what was the security risk? Why didn't they do it before? What was the delay (laughs) in augmenting and modernizing technology? And I think that's what we'll see with a lot of these fintech trends coming up this year. Great. Exactly. I think, you know, sometimes we, uh, humans are obviously uh, bound to their habits, right? And it's so hard to to shake them and to to make a change. Uh, you know, it is sometimes harder than it is uh, that it is physically or technically, right? It's just a mindset. So now talking about these acquisitions, I actually like to follow up on this. So we we cover that. But what we have seen is incumbents buying fintechs 
Um, we've seen this before, but now they are much bigger, right? And uh, they are used to expand to the new mar to new markets. So, of course, actually, I spoke to uh, J.P. Morgan from New York, uh, and uh, and you can listen to the episode. It, it came out in August on Voice of FinTech, and we talked about how they welcome uh, cooperation with with startups, how they want to be quick to judging whether there is a potential there or not and worldwide. So there was no surprise that they would buy Nutmeg, for example. Um, they tried to go into retail in the UK a few years ago, but they acquired a platform which um, had uh, clients with average age of 80 and it was actually built on, it was a, um, it was a truly legacy infrastructure. So it, it did, didn't really go anywhere. And uh, of course, um, they could um, start from the scratch, but I think most of the commentators or the market thinks that this was a good idea to buy Nutmeg, which is essentially a digital-only um, wealth manager. On the other hand, for Nutmeg, um, this was a great deal because they did get in 2020 to over three billion pounds AUM, I think, but it's been a struggle. And after, I think, a um, number of years, they still haven't turned a profit. So even though they had um, a large amount of customers, I believe 140,000 or something, great platform, but still a very costly um, to acquire new customers over $100 or something. And the average uh, balance was uh, 20,000 something. So um, not a great immediate uh, um success story for them. So if uh, JP Morgan came along and offered to buy them out, uh, why not? And now the question is, why would you do this, right? I think JP Morgan could acquire the license there without any issues, but uh, it was also a platform play and some base, uh, base of uh, customer base. So why not? Um, but I'd like to start being a little bit critical here when we talk about a favorite deal for many people when Square uh, decided to buy Afterpay in $29 billion deal. Of course, strategically, I would say uh, it's a no-brainer, right? It's complementary to Square. Square can get it further. Now, what some critics would say is that look at the NPLs and take a step back. Of course, it's great if you have more financing opportunities or uh, solutions out there. But on the other hand, uh, these sort of things used to be there for larger items. So if you wanted to buy a, a fridge in some countries or even in the US, etc., you wanted some financing, you, can, you could do this. And now with NPL exploding, and you can do this for a lot, uh, lot smaller tickets. Of course, it is allowed by the technology that we have. Um, but what about actually some of these NPL companies claiming they are, there is no credit check whatsoever? I know it's a very sensitive, sensitive topic. Nobody wants to talk about a credit score, score on, a, you know, on a Tuesday night. But, um, but still, do you need that uh, stuff you know, when you want to go on Amazon and, and uh, you can buy everything. And uh, basically, uh, then you look back. Um, also, I also hosted a session 
about the stupid stuff we bought during the, the lockdowns in, in Europe, right? Because you're sitting at home and it's so easy to buy and, and get everything delivered. Plus, if you have this financing, even better. Long-winded, um, uh, you know, uh, long-winded effort to say that uh, maybe let's watch out for NPLs. Let's watch and let's be also careful. At some point, I think you should do some sort of a credit check. And I think, of course, you could do it for smaller tickets. If you use alternative credit scoring, you use algorithms, you can use it, you can do it much better than we used to do. On the other hand, um, don't necessarily help um, people buying stuff they don't need and they cannot pay, right? They, they cannot pay it back even uh, next month. So then what are we going to do? We're going to have another 2008 or nine. I don't know what you think, David. Maybe you're a bit more optimistic on NPLs. Well, you know, looking at this acquisition, Square buying Afterpay, I remember not long time ago when Square was worth $1 billion and Square just bought Afterpay for $29 billion. So Square has definitely grown a lot during the pandemic. And I wonder why they went after afterpay instead of companies like Klarna and Affirm. And I think part of it is that Square already has a lot of access in certain markets and not in other markets. And the technology and accessing Oceana will provide uh, a new way for Square to be more global. So I think that's something strategic there, uh, as opposed to a firm which is now a public company, which may have been a little bit more complicated to to get that uh, merger going. Uh, but I, I do wonder, you know, thinking about this, even though there's no interest that the consumers have to pay, you know, say you buy a hundred dollars of uh, a technology item on an e-commerce website, and instead of paying a hundred dollars today on a credit card or a debit card or direct to bank, you're going to make four payments of $25. I try to think about that. And I, I see your, your perspective on that, Rudy, because, well, then I have $75 more today than I didn't have, which means I might as well make another three $100 purchases. But what does that trickle down have over time? It's a lot more consumer spending. And there is a, there is a pent up demand from the pandemic, so people are ready to buy. It's just a big question that Square says, are people ready to buy and buy now, pay later? Yeah, good point on, you know, why not a firm or somebody like that? I think the, the answer is exactly what you said. It's the geographic, you know, complementarity. Of course, uh, I think Afterpay um, headquartered in Australia, but very big in the US and other countries, but um, more international than a firm and others. So. That uh, probably makes sense. I think in you know these four payments, I think that PayPal started right. Uh, you can buy everything in four payments for no no interest. I mean, anyway, there is a zero interest. But the way that these companies make money is through late fees, right? So if you do miss payment, then you will cough up, <laughs> frankly, uh, if you have the money. So my concern is, all right, you say that you don't really check the clients whether they are. Uh, credit worthy or not, uh, how do your models work so that in the end this will not all uh, collapse, right? But let's see how it goes. I think 
in terms of doing M&A and justifying strategic rationale, I get it. In terms of uh, technology in this particular sector, I just wouldn't be necessarily doing a parade for them just because everybody's doing it. You know, it sounds uh, a little bit uh, 2008-9 or 2000, frankly, a little bit as well. So, but in any case, um, let's maybe talk about one other success or trend, which I didn't mention um, out of these five trends at the beginning, which is quite fun thing to do, but again, uh, makes some people uneasy a little bit. And it's NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens. And uh, what we know is that in late 2020, this was a very small category, frankly, a lot of blockchain enthusiasts were into it, but not uh, not as big as in first quarter 2021. But I think we got Jason who's trying to say something, so I, I'll let him to comment if you want. Maybe, maybe not. While, while Jason may be queuing up there, I want to add uh, something for the audience. As I know, this is fishbowl, and this wouldn't be fishbowl without good rumors, especially being now a glass store company. Uh, I'll add a little thing on the rumor mill today. If you are career searching, I can say pretty confidently that I have a friend at Square who tells me that they are massively hiring right now. So Square has a ton of open positions. They're hiring, uh, if you're joining us in North America, um, across multiple states, including SF and the New York offices. And linking it to NFTs and in general, right, if you do look for a job, what you should look for is people who just raise money. Ideally, you will time it right so uh, you will build your relationships with these companies even before that, right? So what I've seen, and I didn't know that company before, is, for example, SoftBank leading a $680 million funding round for NFT fantasy soccer a game, Sorar, which is a French company. So you can have a unicorn in, uh, you know, doing NFTs as well in Europe. Of course, a big thing in America, especially... Uh, with the tradition of baseball uh, cards, etc. And uh, if you follow tennis like I do, I, I obviously enjoy the US Open final, even though I was rooting for the for your neighbor Canadian uh, player, Leila Fernandez. But uh, what I've seen and uh, what we will feature on the podcast as well is that she partnered up with uh, Superbit.io, where they offer in an auction, NFTs, um, moments, uh, virtual or offline, uh, that you can buy and then you can trade. Now, when I talked to Dan Buxaber from blockchain.com, actually came out today, uh, he was a little bit more um, uh, careful when it comes to NFT, of course, high growth category, everybody's excited about it but uh, watching it closely so they don't end up tangled up in some sort of a controversy, right? So when I want to talk to uh, Superbit CTO, I want to talk about safety, security. How do you know that uh, that video from Leila that you got is really just one of the 10 videos or 10 NFTs that uh, you bought? Um, how can you trade it as well? Uh, that's uh, maybe something that still needs to be a bit more developed. So any thoughts on this if you would like to do a temperature check how much do you like the the nfts david one to ten ten being the hottest 
or the, the, the that you like the most? You know, you know, it's interesting because um, I, I saw so rare when they had just raised their pre-seed um, a couple of years ago, and, and I've seen their meteoric growth, and and I've followed many of the NFT companies, including all six layers of NFTs on the market for on-chain. Um, uh, before I tell you the number, he, here's what I believe. I believe that the two strongest use cases for on-chain we've seen have been DeFi and NFTs. DeFi on institutional and NFTs on consumer because it's got people excited for a real use case for blockchain technology. With that said, on the technology, I am a 10 on NFTs. It's a great use case on its value as an asset. I'm most likely a two or three. It is so volatile today. It is so risky. It's fun to get in, but definitely think about what it is that you're getting in on. And until we get a more mature market, there's a lot of volatility there. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy market, right? Uh, but when you look at the analysis of why the in the first quarter it just uh, exploded, um, some people say it's also it has to do with uh, Bitcoin price and with other cryptocurrencies, and maybe people felt like they were they felt the wealth effect, right? Sometimes you know when your stock portfolio goes up, uh, maybe you you will buy more of the the electronics uh, on Amazon than you should have, uh, perhaps. So that could have been the reason. And but it but on the other hand. It seems that I think there's um, two reasons. There's yeah. there's only in, in my mind there's two logical reasons why NFTs are on fire in the market right now. Um, number one, it's the pandemic effect. People are not spending money on physical goods how they used to, so they're channeling it into new digital goods, and they're no longer just digital goods that you buy on Second Life and Fortnite, but they're digital goods on the metaverse, and then. That's what, that's reason number one. And reason number two is scarcity. If there was not scarcity, the value would not be there. Why would a physical Louis uh, Vuitton handbag be 10,000 US dollars because of scarcity of material and limited edition? The same things there uh, for these NFTs, but that's while they have a perceived value of scarcity and that could dry up overnight. I'll give a, a practical example right now. NBA Top Shot is a brand for basketball and the NBA for these video NFT moments. It launched during the pandemic. Similar to So Rare, it built up uh, very high hundreds of millions of revenue. Some of these digital cards were worth hundreds and thousands of dollars. If you go on to NBA Top Shot today, almost all the cards are worthless. They're pennies on the dollar. They're absolutely lost all their value because no one believed that the value was still there. And so with the money that Dapper Labs and NBA Top Shot raised, they are pivoting their whole business model to create an NFT game similar to what So Rare did as a last hurrah to survive in the market. So so with that, you know, I share that the, the gloomy side of it, um, because there is a tremendous amount of risk or tulip bulb phase if we look on it from the value. But if we look at it from the technology, it's so fascinating that we can work with these um, these digital technology items that, uh, in fact, is just the beginning of a new use case enabled uh, by blockchain. 
Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it looks like uh, now that tennis is covered, you know, I'm I'm gonna be probably uh, uh, sold on this one. So no, I'll go no in on it with there. you, Rudy. I, I love the U.S. Open. <laughs> so, so yeah, but we we need to split. There are two auctions uh, with Leila, so you know we don't need to go against one another. But in any case, um, so that's uh, that's exciting. Um, yeah, so it's a good point. You know, people couldn't go out. Uh, there is pent up de demand in fiat currency, not only in crypto, right? So uh, they they discover this, and and of course there is a celebrity linkage where people are looking to uh, connect with uh, with their fans in a different way. Uh, it could be that also um, it's getting a little bit tiresome uh, for some people just to put out the same kind of content. So this is another way how to connect with the with the audience. And not only this, the, the other angle is, and that maybe has to do with financial literacy as well, or inclusion uh, or fairness. Uh, when you talk about the, uh, the artist, for example, right? Why not artists, why should not artists uh, get money or sooner in their career why do they have to depend on the gatekeepers like the studios or do they couldn't do the big concerts and things like this? So that's another way if you talk about uh, musicians, but if you talk about digital art, then again, um, you couldn't maybe have a show in a gallery. So this is a nice way how to how to actually very cheaply trickle down the econom the economics to the to the right person. So same thing as with you do microfinancing and 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 payments in other parts of the world. Now it with this technology, this is uh, I think you can also see it as a as a financial inclusion use case, right? Yeah, I, I really like that because. Um what we've seen is many companies over the years trying to go for royalties and licensing and these perpetual income and platform after platform continues to fail. And I think now there is that transition point. Uh, and, and I think if we're going to look at these assets, it's possible. Um, one of those platforms that one of my friends worked at um, before he joined uh, Amazon was HiFi, H-I.F-I. And, and they've been growing uh, as well. They're, they're not necessarily on the blockchain, but they work for financial rights uh, as an organization for the music industry. Uh, where where you can get royalties on on your music, uh, and and actually the founder used to be at MTV, so you know taking that from the music uh, originator into uh, the financial space, it's been fascinating. You know, HiFi just came on a new round of funding and has been growing. So I think um, whether it is on chain or off chain, there is. A big conversation that we're having today as a society. Uh, in fact, just a couple hours ago, I spoke to one of my uh, good friends who runs some of the biggest tech conferences in the United States. And the conversation we were talking about is the institution and what it means to be included, uh, either on an institutional level or as an individual level. And that uh, as a result of the last couple of years, 
a lot of uh, people believe that the inclusion is no longer there. We're not just talking about diversity inclusion and data inclusion and, you know, the right to uh, insert phrase here. Uh, we're talking about, you know, being part of co-op and being part of the system that grows so everyone wins together. And I think that's perhaps what's sparked um, so much fervent passion with a lot of these ventures that are now venture-backed uh, in the blockchain space, many of them backed from the three uh, big players like Consensus Labs, New York Dig, uh, as well as a digital uh, uh, currency group, DCG. Yeah, well, that is great to hear. I'd like to also maybe digress a little bit uh, from, let's say, blockchain, NFT to inclusion and uh, mention one example that I really liked that we did this year. Uh, well, our colleague Joke out of Nigeria, she spoke to the CEO of Hello Tractor and just a, a different kind of example. And he's actually an American who moved to Africa and he started this company, he used to be uh, on the President Obama's Council of Advisors of, uh, for doing business in Africa jail and um, he basically has a company that is putting IoT uh, sensors on a tractor not as much for security purposes so they don't get lost and things like this but it's linked to uh, repayments of those uh, of the loans that are related to those tractors so you can buy um, buy this tractor on a credit but then how do you pay it back, you use that IoT tractor to IoT sensor, sorry, to track down how much money you make. And this money is directly used to re, uh, pay down the, the, the debt. They partner up with MasterCard to do this. It's part of MasterCard Path program, which is the worldwide program they got. And uh, something, you know, I think quite uh, original and exciting, uh, which kind of uh, puts together different sort of technologies, the IoT, the payments themselves, and the physical world. So AgTech uh, meets uh, FinTech there, and there is a U.S. and international. I love all the companies that we brought on a voice of fintech. You know, when you think about the companies from uh, non-venture backed to pre-seed through Unicorn, there's been so many memorable stories, Rudy, that you uh, and I and, and all eight of the co-hosts have brought on this year. And when, when we think about inclusion, there's two companies that come to my mind that I've brought on the show this year, really enjoyed. And the first company is Moda Refi. I spoke earlier this year with Kevin Bennett, the CEO of Moda Refi. And what Kevin and his co-founder came up with is a gap in the market around auto ownership. Uh, if you're someone who owns a car, uh, whether that's self-driving or not, chances are you may have taken out uh, a lease uh, or you've financed that vehicle with a large interest rate and you're paying every month. In fact, when you do the math, almost half of your entire payment for the car becomes interest payments throughout the life. And 
there's very few players in the space that help you refinance a car. It's almost impossible to do, but it's a common sense problem to be solved for. And so Kevin and his team launched Moda Refi so that anyone can take an auto financing and refinance a car at a lower interest rate, just like you refinance a house and a mortgage. So I thought that was really fascinating for inclusion. One of those great success stories that we're seeing growing out of the pandemic for uh the caring and the middle class um the second story yeah sorry and of course i think you i was jumping in there but you talked about the uh, lease lock right i think yeah so motor refi the first one yeah absolutely on the on the motor side but lease lock absolutely is gonna who i was gonna dive to next uh i think you and i both love that episode rudy so um I also spoke with Derek Merrill, who's the CEO of LeaseLock, and LeaseLock um, takes a, a big approach on renting. We, we know today that the majority of uh, people are renting in the economy. It's no longer owning. Uh, and with renting being as expensive as it is, uh, recently, the New York Times said, post-pandemic that now New York City is the most expensive city in America with a lot of rents going up 40 to 90% post-pandemic. And the challenge is not just the monthly rent, it's actually putting a security deposit of hundreds or thousands of dollars down. And so LeaseLock says, we're going to get rid of security deposits. We've seen now a few companies in there like Rhino and others. What LeaseLock does is they're the underlying technology. They are building Stripe for these companies that unlock security deposits on the building management and the developer level, uh, which I think is really exciting because then that means next time uh, someone who wants to move to New York to build their career doesn't have to have that stress of, do I have $2,000, $3,000 to put down a deposit? No lease lock, who you'll, you'll never hear, hear their name before, by the way, because they're infrastructure, they're behind the scenes, but they power all these apps to ensure you get um, a security-free deposit on rent. So also providing more inclusion uh, for people to build their lives in big cities. Exactly. So I think this is really original and absolutely fantastic. Now, if I come back to the trends I mentioned at the beginning, and uh well if we have new people coming in uh, welcome uh i'll just take a pause again we are talking about success stories of, in fintech in 2021 uh, my name is rudy fallad i'm a founder of voice of fintech podcast and my new york based uh, co-host is david and we're going through some of the trends we've seen and uh looking at some of the success stories with sometimes a bit more critical eye than you see in the media uh, also using some of the examples of the of the interviews that we've done so far. So it's a little bit of a early uh, recap show. We still have one more quarter, so we'll have uh, plenty of content there. So we just want to, um, after the summer, to align our thoughts and then push towards the, the end of the year with some, uh, some great ideas and content. And uh, when we talked about the trends, uh, we talked about financial literacy and inclusion. And then digital payments, the uh, and then also digital only banks, and then autonomous finance, and then also all kind of uh, different payroll options. And what I, whether that's payroll options or 
payments maybe let's let's talk about it as well a little bit uh we also had an episode um from africa where uh, there is a startup in uh, in Af- in east africa uh, helping people who are part of the gig economy or unofficial uh, sector how do they get by and how do they uh, get financing if they don't have a regular salary same thing this has exploded over over time in in the us and elsewhere right so not everybody gets a paycheck every every week or two weeks or every month or so uh depends how you paid now that also leads to another um another boom that we have seen in the fintech is is all kinds of smb or sme solutions right and i for example talked to prashan fuloria ceo of fundbox who is working out of who works out of california he actually says he worked at uh, google yahoo and facebook but uh each of the time at the wrong time so that's why he still uh started his own company and uh this company is called fundbox which is helping smbs with their working capital needs uh which i think is uh quite interesting because they're using ai and machine learning for this why because traditionally for banks to assess the credit worthiness of the SMBs is just so cumbersome, so expensive sometimes to give somebody a loan. Apparently, it can cost up to $20,000. So if you need a a $50,000 loan, of course, doesn't make sense. Similarly, though, our co-host in in Kenya, Patrick, he talked to Hilda Mora from Pezesha. Same kind of uh, problem there um, where she's building a a startup uh, called Pezesha that is helping the uh, SMBs or SMEs uh, in that part of the world is expanding to other countries. So uh, why am I mentioning this SME, SMB business? Many, many times you hear politicians in every country to talk about this is the backbone of our economy, of our society, and it is, but um, it looks and it feels, and now you finally see it and you hear it, that um, they they haven't been properly served by the banks, right? And uh, that is because they were too small and the processes were too manual, too cumbersome, too archaic. And now with the technology that we have, you can finally see something better. So that's another uh, flavor of inclusion, perhaps, or um, or basically payments or payroll solutions that I mentioned. Um, anything from your side, David, on... I think small businesses is the life of all business, right? And we look at that, uh, I think, uh, everywhere. And I think as a result of the pandemic, although small businesses have been hurt in one regards, we've also seen how there's been new opportunity with financing. Um, In fact, I've seen that through one of the companies that I brought on, uh, which is Catapult. Um, Catapult actually uh, recently... Um, uh, went public through a SPAC. Um, Catapult is a really interesting company. Um, This one's really powerful for e-commerce businesses because it goes back to, um, Rudy, what you brought up earlier with Afterpay and the buy now, pay later market. So Catapult is one of those businesses that also you haven't heard of before. But let's say you are on a website and you're going to make a purchase with a buy now, pay later. 
And that is with Afterpay. That's with Affirm. That's with Klarna. That's with PayPal uh, split payments. Let's say that you get rejected from buy now, pay later. Yes, that can happen. You don't, everyone doesn't just get buy now, pay later. There is a credit scoring system that goes there and you get rejected. Catapult is the system that then offers you an alternative buy now, pay later at a, a very low interest rate right after um, to help uh, ensure that that customers who actually are deserving and want that uh, purchase you know, uh, can get that. And that's where Catapult comes in. So I think we've seen opportunity there that helps both the consumer as well as the business who would have lost out on the purchase. So that's one company uh, on the small business front that we featured in Voice of FinTech that was with Catapult and the CEO Orlando Zayas. Um, that one was really fascinating. And you reminded me a while ago, I spoke to Marvin Fordsley, uh, who is the CEO of Veeam out of San Francisco, and it's a B2B payments platform. And what I like about it in one sentence, very easy, is uh, that uh, when you talk about crypto or blockchain, generally, uh, people think this is just part of one world, and it doesn't really uh, work with the traditional finance world. But you can also bridge it together. Actually, I recorded an interview that will come out uh, uh, very soon as well, which also talks about that. But Marvin does basically a uh, similar thing as well, where he uh, he and his team, they are using AI and ML technology when you're sending money as an SME or SMB business around the world or within the US, etc. They're using AI ML to find the optimum route using either the existing rails, uh, which uh, VisaNet or Mastercard built, or you can use the you can use the, uh, the the crypto as well on the back of it, as if this was the rails for payments, right? And uh, which way is the quicker way uh, in this maze of uh, payments and and as people call it rails? Well, that's what AI and ML will help you to do. So this is what Veeam does, and I think this is pretty cool. And uh, they've been doing this for a while, quite uh, quite successfully. Now. Where does that all lead? I mean, uh, in terms of all these trends, what it also means is that you've seen, and in combination with a huge money raised by the investors, right? And still, we'll see what happens, but still low interest rates so far. So maybe people thought there will be it will be so hard to do deals last year, etc. And now, in the first six months, I think in terms of uh, VC funding, and uh, when you look at the fintech funding, we are somewhere where we were for the whole last year. So clearly, unbelievable amount of money, which is caused by many, many uh, rounds, which are more than um, six digits or more than 100 million in a round. So one that comes out of Europe, but it's relevant for the US because that's why they raised the money is Revolut, of course, and they raised 800 million at $33 billion valuation, which was six times more than the previous round this year. Um, Klarna did, uh, did also raise money and uh, they were valued 46 billion um, based out of Sweden. They're thinking about an IPO, but with the markets today, they are quite nervous. Let's see what happens. Also, I think Nasdaq uh, today and the tech stocks didn't do well. So obviously every day is different and we have a long-term view here, but still, um, I'd like to play this uh, to a fairly difficult question. 
you know, kind of crystal ball question to, to David. Do you think that we seeing um, overheating, that we seeing the fundraising bubble? There are also some investors, very, uh, very prominent one like Hoxton Ventures. That's, you know, one of the partners there said, this feels a lot like 1999 to me. Um, what's your view on this, David? Oh, the crystal ball question. Well, okay, there's, there's a few things to unpack here. So first off, when we look at startup valuations, they have definitely risen uh, and they've risen a lot. You look at before the pandemic at one of the gold standards for startup valuation, Y Combinator or YC, companies were exiting from the accelerator at a $6 million post-money valuation. Now they're exiting at a 15 million post money valuation or more. So there's potentially a two or more X markup just on these pre-seed and seed companies. So that's interesting. And some of that is warranted, of course, by more users and more revenue and more growth as the digital economy and technological innovation picks up with cloud products. So there is some warranted value there. Now, there's also, um, as Rudy mentioned, there's been a lot of capital, right? There's low interest rates. There's, there's a lot of capital in the market. So we see a lot of funds that have raised historic funds. Um, just this year, Sequoia uh, raised $195 million seed fund. Then Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, came out with a $400 million seed fund just a couple months ago. And then just last week, Greylock came out with a $500 million seed fund. These companies historically do not invest in seed. These venture capital firms typically invest in Series A and above. But that's changing uh, because as the industry's matured, they're getting closer to the early days with these startups. It doesn't answer the question if the valuations are warranted, but when VCs come in and they fight for the early days of getting access into a round, that will often lift the valuation. And with that, there's this common saying that we see in technology, which is uh, a rising tide raises all boats. A rising tide raises all boats. So I think that's what we're seeing now also, that just all valuations overall are, are increasing. Um, where will that stop or continue is still to be determined, but we're seeing a lot of talent enter the space. I mentioned Andreessen Horowitz's $400 million seed fund. Well, on the backs of that, A16Z hired David Haber, he, who ran M&A at Goldman Sachs. We have people from the finance industry now leaving deals at uh, the leading venture capital uh, funds. So, so this is interesting. Um, there's, there is a lot of excitement around fintech. Um, I live in New York City and you know, meetups are just coming back alive. And one of the big ones that, that relaunched three months ago is the New York FinTech Happy Hour. And the first event was sold out. The second event was sold out. The fourth event, in less than one hour, the tickets sold out. That event is this Thursday night. If you're in New York, hope to see you um, at the New York FinTech Happy Hour. Feel free to message me on Fishbowl. Happy to connect. Um, so there is a lot of um, interest in the market, for sure. Um, 
I will say on valuations, just to tie this all together, that myself as someone who does invest in the pre-seed and seed stage, I am not a hype investor. I am a, uh, what we call someone who invests based on uh, tradition, uh, as in, you know, the revenue, the clients, the business that's being built, the big opportunity with the team and the founder market fit. So I typically do not look at companies that are above 15 million for a pre-seed or seed. Um, I think there's just some overvaluation here. And what I, I say to founders, if you're listening on the call today and you're raising those early rounds, the thing that you want to consider when you're raising dilutive capital is if you take a round today, let's call it your pre-seed of 15 million, and then you need more capital in 18 months and you do not have a markup, that is going to hurt your company. So I tell companies just because you can raise at a valuation because of capital from angels and, and those who, who aren't marking the rounds with a priced valuation, consider always a long-term for your business. And I think um, anyone who's building, build for the long-term. So whether these valuations are here to stay or not, you can weather the next storm, whether that's another pandemic or another distressed financial crash like in 2008. And you reminded me something we, a couple of weeks ago, we had Dana Griffith uh, that uh, calls herself a um, startup alchemist and a corporate storyteller. And uh, that very well explains what she does. She helps startups to, to raise money and not to be boring in the process. And uh, what I talked to her about as well is, is exactly what you said. Um, uh, it's an episode that I remember from the TV show Startup uh, when they, uh, they, you know, the team mentioned and um, meant another team that raised a lot of money. And then in the next round, they had a down round and everything went, went downhill from there. And um, she said to me that, look, uh, on the show, not that it's realistic that so many things happen to, to one startup. Perhaps it's like on Seinfeld where uh, Jerry Seinfeld and, and Larry David, apparently they had a condition that they would include the story uh, from the writers only if the writer swore that uh, those really happened to, to them or to somebody they knew in person, right? So similar thing here in the startup, a um, lot of things happened that would happen to many of them, but not to one single one. But the message here is just because you can, don't necessarily go for the highest valuation in this particular round because you will need to raise money again, most likely, and again. And uh, if you cannot raise it at a higher valuation, then uh, you may really jeopardize your business altogether. So sometimes it's not worth um, to to have the, the highest number there. Also, as in m and in an auction, sometimes we, uh, parties are surprised that they put the highest number on the table, but it, they didn't win. That could happen as well uh, because there are also other non-financial factors there. And personal factors also, like uh, in the famous book and uh, and also uh, HBO TV movie, Barbarians at the Gate, right? So in terms of fundraising bubble, let's see. Let's hope the economy uh, stays in a decent shape. Uh, I also, to wrap up, I just wanted to mention a couple of 
unicorns that we talk to. Uh, maybe it sounds a little bit self-serving, but I'm I'm very happy when we talk to our guests and they do well. You know, we don't have a commercial relationship with them or anything like this, but they just do well. And I think uh, that um, that is that is important because we'd like to what we'd like to do is to inspire founders or inspire people who are thinking about launching their new ventures to uh, to do something right and uh, to get going and try it out and of course not everyone will end up having a unicorn but um, but it looks like uh, that more and more people uh, see that it's it's possible and uh, yeah. they give it a go so I think. Um, for example, uh, maybe you should mention a B2B fintech that we that you spoke to David Sokur, right? That is a, a unicorn officially uh, just, let's say, uh, achieve this unicorn status. Because a lot of the times we talk to B2B businesses that are not necessarily featured in the media uh, because it's not B2C, it doesn't face the consumers. But it is something that helps your life to uh, helps your life to be to be better. So maybe um, that one you can mention uh, a little bit more, David. Or or of course, digital bank Varo raised five hundred million or more at twenty five dollar twenty five billion dollar valuation, right? So these were one of the few one of the some of them that you've spoken to recently, right, David? Yeah, they've both been really strong stories. And I was really captivated by Secure um, for a few reasons. Um, in fact, I met the original founder of Secure at Finnovate 2021 in New York City at the Marriott uh, Grand Marquis just two weeks ago. And when I spoke with Sunil, he's now leading his next venture, instant.org. He had hired Johnny Ayers out of college, and Johnny Ayers is the now CEO of Secure. And we spoke about Johnny's rise to CEO and how Secure has become the go-to uh, public identity verification system for fintechs like Public.com and Robinhood, among others. And it's to me that's the most satisfying part about being a podcast host is to see the story and that narrative unfold as the companies connect and grow. Uh, I think the same was true with Vara Money. You know, when I was speaking to Deep uh, and connecting with him, this is when they were still in their previous round. I think they were only valued at, you know, under 10 uh, at that time. And they've, you know, really gone with mission driven, uh, been laser focused on their product led growth. And uh, they're building just an incredible uh, digital bank um, that is what is known as Varo today. That episode's great if you want to learn about technology. Most of the episodes that I, I speak with with Rudy on, on the show, I, I, I heavily favor business, sometimes data science, uh, given my background. But with Deep, we went deep, uh, literally, into technology uh, since he's the CTO uh, of Varo Money. So yeah, those were great success stories that we're seeing uh, emerging in the fintech ecosystem. And as you want to grow and be a unicorn, it's tougher and tougher to do it in your home market, even though it's, uh, you know, obviously uh, the the biggest market and the easiest one to conquer if you're based out of the US. But that's why we also spoke to our uh, colleague, uh, Clementina, spoke to Wallace founder from Argentina that is now um, two and a half billion dollar worth uh, 
fintech uh, active also in Mexico and uh, other countries around Latin America, and she did it in Spanish. Um, we have a host, uh, Tanya, based in India, and she works for Neum. And Neum, her company also crossed a $1 billion valuation recently, and uh, she will have an episode uh, out actually this Thursday. And uh, funny for, funnily or interesting for me was that I spoke to uh, Dan um, uh, Bookstabber from blockchain.com who worked with Alistair Carnes at Adapar. And uh, I spoke to Alistair uh, earlier this year and uh, know him from Credit Suisse when he was head of products at the wealth management division and my internal client when I worked at Credit Suisse in corporate development. So the world is small uh, in finance and in fintech and everyone's connected uh not within not only within new york city but uh globally so to wrap up what i'd like to say is um if you like to continue the conversation we'd love to hear from you uh, the easiest way is to go to our website voiceoffintech.com there is a form there where you can send us ideas for guests you can send us ideas for topics or for live events or chats like this, that would be great. Or you can email us. Uh, you find an email there at info at voiceoffintech.com. Or you find either of us on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest. Or, uh, you know, once we'll have a proper, proper channels on, on Glassdoor, of course, as well, or any other social media, you find Voice of Fintech, uh, you know, on all the uh, podcast apps or in the podcast apps that you might like. And that you would expect um so would very much appreciate to hear from you um if you could uh, let us know what you would like to uh, hear and learn uh, most about whether that's um fintech uh, defined quite rigidly and purely that's fair enough we can go deeper into sub some sort of ver verticals but i like to take fintech as broadly as possible so for me any business in the world can be fintech except for perhaps life sciences but um we we talked uh, we had episodes where i talked to music tech companies having a fintech angle uh we talked to uh fine a company that is uh, is financing uh, wine growers uh we we are working on an episode where fintech meets proptech for example of course, sustainability is a big, big topic. We haven't covered uh, perhaps enough uh, today, but we, I talked to some of the think, tank, think tanks there that are Swiss or global, some of the policy makers as well that are trying to work in that field. You can also try to find solutions how to fight climate change uh, using the economic incentives that um, match the problems that we have maybe better than we thought about in the past. So a lot of the ideas there, fintech doesn't have to be just about payments. It can be because there are so many exciting use cases, as uh, David mentioned, lease log, fantastic, or Moto refi, or other, uh, other ones related to SMB, SME, um, machine learning, etc. But it can be also adjacent uh, sectors. So uh, one last one I'll mention again, uh, Hello Tractor and AgTech and, and payments, right? So, David, anything from you to to close the session as well? 
if you want to learn more, you know, check out voiceoffintech.com. And, and Rudy and I are more than glad to bring on um, guests all across the industry uh, recommendations. If you're in New York City, I hope to see you on Thursday at uh, the New York City FinTech Meetup at Company at 335 Madison. Um, otherwise, feel free to connect here. Um, it's been a pleasure and look forward to uh, seeing many of you again in the future. Great. Well, I envy you the meetup that you're talking about. Uh, but uh, you know, one day we'll we'll make that happen, and we all uh, we will all meet. I'm sure. So in the meantime, uh, stay on Fishbowl and uh, and keep uh, keep an eye out for next events. So thank you, Rachel, for organizing as well, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at voiceoffintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.